For as long as he's covered Congress, Slate's Jim Newell says the day-to-day proceedings have been a kind of choreographed dance. Bills come up in an orderly fashion, and usually only when they've got enough votes to pass. The Speaker rules the chamber like a strong-armed den mother. But it is now clear, after a brutal fight to simply get the 118th Congress started, that is not going to be what Kevin McCarthy's Congress looks like. I mean, I had thought, you know, in the weeks and months ahead as he was trying to get these uh, stragglers to vote for him, I I thought, you know, he'll figure it out by January 3rd because it would be humiliating to have to go through multiple ballots on the floor. (laughs) Apparently, yeah. Humiliating didn't seem to be a concern when it came to electing Republican leadership. In the end, it took 15 votes to get Kevin McCarthy elected Speaker of the House. It's not the kind of history Republicans were hoping to make. Tonight, for the first time in 100 years, failing to elect the Speaker of the House. This eighth vote for House Speaker is expected to end the same way the previous seven did, with Kevin McCarthy falling short of the 218 votes that he will need in order to win the top job. No member-elect having received a majority of the votes cast, a Speaker has not been elected. I, I did not expect it would last this long. Members themselves were at a loss. You know, if you tried to ask them how this is all going to play out, there wasn't like that that one member or that, you know, that that savvy staffer you could go to to kind of tell you the end game here. It was really up in the air. Like a lot of people, Jim blames Kevin McCarthy himself for this messiness. He's someone who, like the way he's risen up is not through fear, you know, people aren't scared of him or they they don't think he's their leading policy genius or something, but he's always been kind of a backslapper. He's always been a very, you know, he can be very charming with other members. Uh, Whenever new members come in, he reaches out to them and invites them over to his office and chats them up. But when you're trying to actually exert power, then that's where that kind of model of how you build up your influence comes back to bite you. And, you know, I don't think people will be scared of him demanding they do things. Members certainly weren't scared of him Friday night when they finally, painfully, gave McCarthy the speaker's gavel. It was not an easy win. Members yelled and booed. One even clapped his hand over another one's mouth to calm him down. It ended like one or so in the morning. It is now my solemn responsibility from the great state of California and the next speaker of the 118th Congress, Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, it was funny because when Kevin McCarthy took the gavel, he like joked. That was easy, huh? He also said, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. Kind of urging people to disregard the chaos of the last week. But I just wondered like, There aren't any signs that things are going to get easier from here on out, are there? No. I mean, he's kind of put himself in a straitjacket. The Freedom Caucus has put itself in control of him. So, you know, this is going to be a recurring thing. You know, it's it's going to be, I think, one of the most interesting Congresses in in a long time watching how that House operates. Today on the show, after a week... Congress is finally in session. 
But is it functioning? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. With so many votes day after day last week, you'd be forgiven for losing the plot when it comes to the ongoing shenanigans in the House of Representatives. So I asked Jim Newell to start off by summing up how Congress ended up voting again and again on their very first order of business, who would serve as speaker. For the first roughly 11 or so votes, it was just deadlocked. You know, you had 20, give or take one, House Republicans who wouldn't vote for McCarthy, every other Republican voted for McCarthy, every Democrat on every ballot, with the exception of one, voted for Hakeem Jeffries because one guy was absent for one vote. So I could start to recite the roll call in my head when they'd start reading it. And did they keep calling for votes, like thinking something different would happen or to wear people down? That's what I didn't get over the course of the week. So it wasn't up to them. Like there, there, were, there was no calling of the vote. So when you open the new Congress, the first order of business is picking a speaker and the clerk just starts reading the roll. So it's like as soon as you flip the lights on, <laughs> you have to start voting, basically. <laughs> yeah, basically. And then a vote will end and your choice is, you know, they'll go through the roll again unless you, you know, move to adjourn or something. But a lot of the time they didn't have the votes to adjourn. Because all Democrats and a lot of the Republican holdouts would say, no, we want to stay in session to kind of show how weak McCarthy is and just keep this going on publicly. Eventually, it became kind of clear who the real holdouts on the Republican side were. Congressman Matt Gates from Florida basically emerged as someone who just did not want to vote in favor of Kevin McCarthy. And then you also had Congresswoman Lauren Boebert from Colorado. Can you just lay out what we know about these two and, and how they operated during the week and, and what it told you about them and, and where they're headed? Yeah. So I think they're both kind of class clowns, um, infamous for that. Boebert, despite being in a, a fairly comfortable Republican district, only won her reelection by about 500 votes or whatever, uh, because she's just kind of seen as a... Uh, a show horse who's not really there to be very productive, but is just there to to get attention. And, you know, Gates is kind of similarly just seen as an, an attention seeker. You ticked off all the things Gates did over the course of the week, and it was kind of amazing. Like, he sent a letter to the architect of the Capitol asking for Kevin McCarthy to have to be removed from the Speaker's office because he was not yet Speaker. Yeah. He, you know, nominated Donald Trump to be Speaker. For what purpose does the gentleman from Florida rise? To place a name and nomination for the position of Speaker of the House. The gentleman is recognized. My friends, when Donald Trump was president, taxes were cut. Obviously, Donald Trump is not in Congress. Like, just all of these really eye-catching moves, but they weren't doing much. Yeah, you could see, you know, Gates was calling McCarthy the squatter of the speaker's office because, they, you know, McCarthy was allowed to work out of the speaker's office during all of this. And then Boebert, you know, in one of her nominating speeches for a, a stalking horse candidate said, The president needs to tell Kevin McCarthy that, sir, you do not have the votes and it's time to withdraw. And with that, I yield. Thank you. I mean, these were pretty feisty things to say, and they were saying them at the dais like, 10 feet away from McCarthy. Hmm. And one thing you saw evolve over the week was McCarthy in the beginning would just kind of sit there and smile. But then as these speeches got more and more, you know, trolling, basically, 
he wouldn't be in that seat, you know, right next to them while they just kind of trash him like that. And in one of the last votes on Friday, when Gates started going on with all his insults against McCarthy, you could see McCarthy's whips telling a lot of the Republicans to to leave the chamber, to not, you know, dignify that kind of stuff. So it was definitely getting nastier. And that, that ultimately boiled over on the uh, second to last vote. Yeah. Let's talk about that penultimate vote, because the way one reporter put it was that watching it was like going to a wedding and one of the people just refuses to say yes. <laughs> and and everyone is just like, hold it. We came here for a wedding. Like everyone was expecting like, OK, Kevin McCarthy is going to get this at 10 p.m. and the 14th vote. What happened instead? So it looked like they had a deal where a lot of the really hard holdouts, you know, would just kind of vote present. Just like I'm here, but I'm not going to vote for anyone. Yeah, yeah. So that lowers the total number you need to win. So if you vote president, then, you know, McCarthy only needs 215 or 216 to win. But then a couple of them did not, like Matt Rosendale, Lauren Boebert. They they voted for other candidates on that ballot. And then Matt Gates, he skipped his turn when they first read the roll call. So at the very end, he voted president. And they needed Gates to vote for McCarthy in order to win that vote. Was that intentional? Like, I just want to be the last one to kind of put the knife in? You know, it's hard to say. I think he didn't want to be the one to put McCarthy over the top. Hmm. So then you had the, the, you know, the incredible scene of McCarthy striding up the aisle to Gates and Boebert and, you know, telling them to just cut it out and Gates wouldn't budge. And Kevin McCarthy, who's usually really affable, was not smiling. He He looked mad. <laughs> when he went to them. He both looked and was mad, you know, because he thought he'd all figured out. He was basically half a vote short of what he needed. And, you know, Gates was asking that they adjourn until Monday. So then I don't know exactly what happened, but Gates and some of the other holdouts were said, okay, let's just wrap this up and get it done. So they were able to get on the next vote. But not before another representative came up and, and tried to basically shout at Matt Gates and was held back, Right. Right. So um, Mike Rogers, who's going to be chairman of the Armed Services Committee, he and Gates have had an issue throughout this process because one of Gates's demands was he wanted to chair a subcommittee in armed services. But, you know, Rogers had refused that. And that was that was kind of a red line that held pretty well in this process. Like a, there are several people asking for gavels that you just can't let them leapfrog and seniority like that. So I think that had been a tension point between Rogers and Gates you know, throughout the week. And um, I guess Rogers came up to him in the aisle and was shouting, you know, like, you're finished after this. I won't forget it. And I thought, you know, there's a lot of reporting that, like, that Rogers lunged at Gates. I didn't quite see that. It looked like he was just shouting at him. But then the reaction from Richard Hudson was so extreme to put his hand over his mouth. It was so extreme. He, like, he did just grab him by the shoulder, pull it back. He just, like, grabbed his face and, like, yanked him away. <laughs> <laughs> which has made for this all-time photo, but it makes it look like, you know, Rogers was about to, like, you know, suplex him or something. And stay, I think, Spirits were high. Spirits were high. I think he was just yelling at him. Well, in the middle of all this, Donald Trump got involved too, right? There are these photos of Marjorie Taylor Greene waving her phone around. It says DT's on the line. And there are reports that he called Matt Gates that he, you know, was watching and weighing in. 
Right. You know, Trump was saying we need McCarthy and he was calling members pretty repeatedly and screaming at them, you know, to kind of get in line behind McCarthy. And that was happening up until the very end when Matt Rosendale, who, you know, they had thought would vote present on that on that 14th vote. There's this incredible photo where Marjorie Taylor Greene is trying to hand off her cell phone, which, you know, the caller initials are DT. And he's just sticking his hand up to her saying he's not going to take it. Hmm. So eventually, Kevin McCarthy, he gets the gavel. He thanks Donald Trump effusively in his speech. But what did he have to give away to get this speakership deal done? Number one, there's this procedure called the motion to vacate the chair. That's like to get rid of the speaker. Yeah, to basically call a no confidence vote on the speaker that, you know, could call for another speaker's election. So when Pelosi was in power, they effectively got rid of it. The Freedom Caucus wanted to restore it so that, you know, first they were saying any five members can put this forward. So McCarthy agreed to that. Then they wanted any one member can put it forward. They just went for it. (laughs) They were like, how about one member can just like get involved here? Yeah, just any old guy. So if McCarthy does something that strays from kind of conservative dogma, it's just going to take one of them to kind of put his speakership up for a vote again. Okay, so McCarthy is kind of living under a sort of Damocles. What else? So the other one, I think this is actually, I think this is the biggest one. It's not quite finalized, like no one's quite seen it, but a lot of the reporting suggests that he gave Freedom Caucus members or other hardliners three seats on the House Rules Committee. And these are the people who decide how things get done in Congress. Yeah, so basically for most major votes that come to the House, the Rules Committee first passes a special rule that determines what bill is going to come up. It waives points of order against it. They limit the number of amendments. They limit the amount of debate time for a bill. And previously, all of the nominees were just close apparatchiks of the speaker. I mean, they would do the speaker's will. And this is kind of the source of the speaker's power in the House was control of the Rules Committee. So the breakdown of that committee is nine to four majority to the minority. So if you give Freedom Caucus three seats, then you have six of the speaker's allies against seven of either, you know, with Democrats and Freedom Caucus members combined. So the speaker is losing a significant amount of control there. I think it's going to be really interesting to watch because, you know, then there could be a situation where McCarthy has to turn to Democrats on the Rules Committee to help get his agenda through. And then that would mean concessions to Democrats. And because of the motion to, you know, vacate the chair, then that could cause repercussions for McCarthy for going to Democrats. So, like, you see, this is going to be a real pain for him, life in this situation. It's interesting because one of our colleagues here at Slate wrote an article that basically said some of the rules changes the far-right faction advocated here aren't that crazy because for a long time, so much power has been consolidated in the role of the speaker and in the rules committee. And so it's really minimized the power of newer members, the power of people who aren't in leadership. And so like there was a quote in there from a progressive basically saying that this is what democracy looks like. Like, you know, with these reforms, we're long overdue and maybe the the messengers aren't perfect, but you know, this is getting at a real issue. I wonder if you see it that way, though. I think it's a real issue. And it's definitely, you know, Democrat, plenty of Democrats have complained about 
the concentration of, of power in, in Pelosi's office. I mean, you could say that this, the concentration in the speaker's office is just because politics has gotten so so cutthroat that you kind of need this like Leviathan-like figure who can just squelch a lot of that trickery and stuff. When we come back, the deal that could spell the end of Kevin McCarthy's leadership if he lets it. The deals that Kevin McCarthy cut that seem to be causing the most angst in Washington revolve around spending. It's interesting. He, he sort of lashed together two things, said that instead of just a big omnibus spending package, like huge trillion plus package at the end of the year, he'll bring up you know 12 regular spending bills. Each committee has its own spending bill. Like here's what the we need for defense. Here's what we need for something else and put them to a vote. And then the idea is that if spending isn't coming down, that potentially that sets up a fight over the debt ceiling. Can you explain all that a little bit? Yeah, so the the details of this are a little bit scant, kind of the the questions of what would happen in the the end game phase of this. There's so much anxiety around it though. Right. So basically what he agreed to is that the house would pass a budget resolution where discretionary spending levels both defense and non-defense are capped at the levels of a couple years ago. So yeah, it basically amounts to you know, a 10% cut or so in the budget. And they say they'll pass each of the 12 individual spending bills uh, on their own. You know, they will meet these these caps that they set in place. And, you know, they will only raise the debt ceiling if these bills are, are passed and there's a blueprint to kind of balance the budget in 10 years. And we should say the debt ceiling, it's looking like it would expire in the summer, like around June. Is that right? I think it'll be like August or and then maybe they can, you know, find enough change to get to like September or so. I mean, in 2011, there was a debt ceiling showdown and it was pretty bad. Like America's credit rating was downgraded. Is that what we're looking at in the next few months? Yes, but I think it's going to be worse this time. Why? Because when Boehner was going through this, you know, well, one, Obama engaged him and they did actually cut a deal. But it was really a lot of heartburn. Yeah, it went right up until the limit. And then, yeah, the the credit rating got downgraded. So I think this one's going to be worse, though, because Boehner could eventually – he at that time could eventually put, say, I'm just putting this bill on the floor. We're going to pass it with a lot of Democratic votes. Deal with it. Like he still kind of had that luxury. And I don't think McCarthy has that luxury. I think if he does that, they'll call a vote on his speakership right away. Hmm. The Republicans I've talked to, like staff and otherwise, like aren't sure McCarthy's long for this world and the speakership. I, you know, I don't, with these spending bills and with the debt ceiling, I think the end game converges on him having to basically get Democratic votes to help to get them over the finish line. And that's going to be, you know, the, the moment of truth for the Freedom Caucus. Like, okay, you got your motion to vacate. Are you going to use it? Well, and then who's got next? Like, if McCarthy's out, like, who's who's waiting in the wings? Well, that that is McCarthy's, you know, his one trump card 
is who else? If someone else could have easily gotten it, you might have seen their name thrown into the mix around ballot seven or eight. I don't really get a good sense of why Kevin McCarthy wanted the job, other than, you know, he said, I was owed it, essentially, at the beginning of the week. He told, he's like, I earned it. That's what he told his caucus. But it's not really a good forward-looking message of like, here's what I'm going to do in the position, and here's why I wanted to wear the crown. It's just sort of like the next thing that's obvious on the resume. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I think he's wanted it for, you know, 20 years or something. And I think the experience of having to drop out of the speaker's race in 2015 and not fighting it out a little bit harder, I think, was top of mind for him going into this. You know, he wasn't able to get it then. He bided his time. Yeah, he felt like he deserved it. And he also probably told himself that I have to do this because no one else is capable of doing it, which there's a kernel of truth to that. But, you know, I think it's more ambition and and just wanting to to eventually have your portrait in the speaker's gallery, (laughs) you know, (laughs) more than anything. On the Sunday shows, uh, a couple of Republicans were basically saying, you know, we're going to give Kevin McCarthy a chance. Do you believe that? Like, do you believe that the House Freedom Caucus is like, honestly, like, yeah, like we're going to give this six months and work together after this last week? Like, do you buy that? Yeah, I think they will. I mean, it's going to get once they pass the rules package, it's going to get a little easier because they have a bunch of bills they have ready to go that should be, I mean, just messaging bills. They're not going anywhere in the Senate, but they're going to have a bill to defund the IRS enforcement expansion that Democrats passed last year. Um, That'll be, you know, easily done. They'll get their committees up and running and subpoenaing people and causing, you know, headaches for for the Biden administration. So I think for a little bit, it'll be kind of smooth sailing. But no one expects this Congress really to pass a lot of interesting legislation. <laughs> you're going to see House Republicans doing messaging bills. You're going to see uh, the Senate. You're going to see Democrats processing nominations. The questions are funding the government and the debt ceiling. Those are the two must-pass things they have to do, and there's not really a, a path to passing them at the moment. Yeah, and just the fact that I said, like, oh, nothing will happen in the next six months, like, means obviously terrible things will happen in the Something next six months. Something will happen. <laughs> but they're just messaging for the next few months, and then they really do have to govern, and they have to figure out how to do that. Jim Newell, thank you so much for coming on and explaining what the heck just happened. Thank you. Jim Newell is Slate's senior politics writer. If you don't already, make sure you subscribe to his weekly newsletter, The Surge. It'll make your Saturdays a little brighter. You can do that at slate.com slash The Surge. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Delshad, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Phillips, Jared Downing, Victoria Dominguez, and Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with an assist from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond makes sure I read the ads every week. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. See the giraffe I met this weekend. Really, I'm at Mary's desk. All right. Thanks for listening. Talk to you tomorrow.